This is The Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. And this episode is sponsored by Audible, which is helping out with the big apiary expansion here at the Palace. Audible has 60,000 audio titles in just about every genre. You can try out their fine service and get a free audiobook right now by visiting audiblepodcast.com slash thememorypalace. And now, episode 29, Babysitting. A postcard from 33.67 degrees north, 106.475 degrees west, July 1945. Oppenheimer was worried. The Manhattan Project was just so big. There were more than 30 work sites at offices with nothing written on their doors, and there were 130,000 people working on the thing. 130,000 pairs of potentially loose lips. And no matter what lengths they went to to keep them from talking to each other, no matter what lengths they went to to keep all but the key personnel from ever even guessing at the big picture, from ever knowing that the circuit board they were assembling or that those lenses they'd been grinding would all come together to build a weapon that would be, by factors of 10, the deadliest thing that anyone had ever built. There were still too many people who knew too much, too many potential spies who knew they were going to finally test the thing in the morning, who knew that Truman was in Potsdam with Stalin and Churchill, counting on success. And there were too many potential saboteurs who knew too many ways to stop the thing from going off, or worse, to make it go off too soon. And now the gadget, that's what they called the deadliest thing anyone had ever built. The gadget was just out there all alone in the middle of the desert, hanging from a steel tower, a hundred feet in the air. And there was a storm rolling in. Two years earlier, Don Hornig's wife, Lily, picked up the phone in their little house out on Cape Cod. The couple had just moved in after their honeymoon, after Don wrapped up his PhD at Harvard at the age of 23. Lily was working on her own PhD that summer and on planting the little garden they'd both dreamed about. The man on the phone said Don was needed by his government. He couldn't tell them what the project was. He couldn't tell them what his job would be. He couldn't tell them where they were going, but they'd better get going. Two years later, Robert Oppenheimer was looking for someone to babysit the A-bomb. He needed someone who understood how the bomb worked, and Hornick had designed the trigger system. So if someone had sabotaged it by swapping out a wire or loosening a screw, Hornick might catch it. And they needed someone young. The other scientists were too important to lose in some sort of atomic catastrophe. They had kids. They had tenure. And since they didn't give him a weapon with which to defend either himself or the weapon they were banking on to win the war, maybe he'd be fit enough to wrestle any Nazis who came to blow the thing up. Now, I will tell you right now that there is no big twist coming here. Don Hornig doesn't remove his lab coat to reveal an SS uniform underneath. There is no moment when the young scientist, long disrespected by his older Nobel laureate bosses, looks up at the bomb to realize that those great men had spent so much time contemplating the atom and the origins of the universe, they'd overlook one tiny detail, which Hornick fixes with some chewing gum and a sprig of rosemary, which he always kept tucked behind his ear to remind him of that little garden he and his wife had left behind in the cape and of the life they would someday return to when they finally woke up from this nightmare. So no, there's no twist. I tell you all of that backstory just to leave you with this. Sometime after midnight, on July 16, 1945, just hours before the Trinity test, which would lead to Hiroshima and Nagasaki 
in the end of the war, in the start of the Cold War, and decades of regret and fear and environmental catastrophe and all of it. One 25-year-old guy sat in a small, three-sided, corrugated aluminum box, with one side open to the elements. 100 feet above the desert, atop a steel tower, in a thunderstorm. And while he listened to the rain pinging and rattling on the metal roof, and sat in a folding chair under a bare 60-watt bulb, thumbing through a dog-eared paperback collection of funny short stories, James Thurber, Dorothy Parker, Mark Twain, trying to distract himself from thinking about what would happen if a rain-soaked steel tower in the middle of the desert holding one man and one nuclear bomb were struck by lightning. While his colleagues sat in bunkers that the math had told them needed to be at least 10 miles away for safety. And while he wondered if his trigger system would work and about how the office pool would turn out, the one where physicists placed bets on the outcome of the test, ranging from total dud to an explosion that would ignite all of the nitrogen in the Earth's atmosphere, destroying all life on the planet and how army scientists were calculating how many people would die, depending on the various outcomes of the morning's test, and how Truman and Churchill were hoping that it would at least be big enough to end this goddamn mess. There was just a guy in a box with a bomb. That's The Memory Palace, episode 29 brought to you by Audible. You can go there right now and try it out and get an audiobook for free. Just head over to audiblepodcast.com slash thememorypalace to sign up for your free trial and get your book. And if you've happened to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or whatnot, you might want to go to its website, thememorypalace.org, and check it out. There's news and stuff about the music in each episode and where you can listen to it on the radio. There's the obligatory Facebook group, that sort of biz. Thanks a lot for listening.